This is Chapter 84 of the WCBS Author Talks podcast. Follow us on Twitter and Instagram at WCBS880Books. I'm Lisa Chernkovich. This week, a four-star Army general separates the myth from the reality when it comes to history's greatest leaders. We travel back to Cabot Cove with author John Land, and we'll hear about a cat and mouse novel featuring two cats. What makes a great leader? The quick answer is usually someone who's driven and dedicated and inspires their employees to push the envelope. But in his new book, Leaders, Myth and Reality, retired General Stanley McChrystal points out these same people can be deeply flawed, and he's pulled together a list of notable names to illustrate his point. He spoke with our Paul Murnane. What a list. Everyone from Robespierre to, to Robert E. Lee to, to, to Walt Disney to Coco Chanel. Uh, how did you come to select this group of names? It does seem to be rather random. It, it's funny. We wanted to get a group that was diverse of nationalities, the areas that they worked, sex, all that kind of thing. So we worked very hard. We had more than 100 uh, possibilities. We argued over each of them, and, and as we do pairings, and uh, we also did something we call the Annie test. Annie is my wife of 41 years. And, and what we did was we wouldn't pick someone unless the average person would recognize their name and be curious about them so that they would read on. Because we knew we couldn't ever communicate our message if we couldn't get people to read it. And so we wanted this to be as entertaining as possible with some good conclusions that come with it. We realize that these people are, are human beings. We're all human beings, and they have their faults and flaws. But we do look back with, as I said, these rose-colored glasses, and we see them as these perfect kind of heroes. We do, and, and that's really our need as followers. We, we follow what we call three myths, and what that does is it creates a two-dimensional look at leaders in the past, particularly. You know, biographies tend to put a spotlight on a person and move through their life, and and everything outside of the person is kind of in the shadows. And so we tend not to give as much importance to the other people around the leader or their followers or the context of the moment. We tend to think the leader is the person that's actually affecting all of those things. In reality, it's much the opposite. It's an interaction between the leaders and these contextual situations and followers. And so by looking at this, what we're able to do is understand that these leaders that we've sort of shrunk into two-dimensional stick figures are really nuanced, three-dimensional, always flawed, but sometimes, you know, accomplishing great things. And it's much better for us to understand them holistically than to oversimplify. Let's talk about some of the names on the list. I'll start with the first one, which is Robert E. Lee. And you had a picture of Robert E. Lee. He was from Virginia like you are. And yet at one point you took that picture down and put it out with the trash. That's right. For my life, Robert E. Lee was the perfect soldier. He was perfect at West Point, perfect in the Army until the Civil War, and then the perfect general in the Civil War. And he was all the traits you want. But the reality is, He had the highest casualty rate of any commander in American history among the people who worked for him, and he also lost. And you say, okay, well, wait a minute. Those are sort of different aspects, and we can make excuses for either of them. And then you say, not only do that, but he betrayed the country, his oath, for support of a cause that involved slavery. And then you say, all right, in the three-dimensional sense, Robert E. Lee is very good. We can't take away in many ways but he's got things that we can't admire or I can't agree with. And in many ways, 
his two-dimensional mythological mythological depiction had been hijacked by some groups with causes that, that I don't support, like white supremacy. And so the reality is he's a complex character, and we need to look at him that way, not as good or bad, but as human. Walt Disney was a complicated character. We remember, of course, Disneyland, Disney World, the wonderful animation works that he was behind. But we forget about uh, the brutal labor battle that happened uh, at Walt Disney Studios. Um, do we, do, is this the way history is taught? Is this the way books are written? Is that why we kind of gloss over the rough areas with these people? I think there are always great biographies written, but most of us don't get to delve into that. We we tend to get a pretty narrow view, and, and so I think it does. And someone like Walt Disney, a persona is created, a legend, a myth is created about the individual. But when you really dig into it, as you say, the brutal 1941 labor strike that he had shows that there were two sides of, of Disney that weren't particularly pretty. Can leadership be taught I mean, you had you know your long history in the military, and you are very much a leader of today. Is it something you learned, or was it something that just kind of came along uh, that was maybe just part of the ether, part of your DNA? Yeah, I think it is mostly learned through experience and things you see and opportunities you get. But I also think it's extraordinarily circumstantial as well. You are put into a position with certain people around you, followers and whatnot, and in the context of the moment, and a leader emerges. I think there are probably some of the greatest leaders in history never arise because the context of the moment just never demands it. And then there are other people who become leaders who probably don't have that much ability or or that much motivation, but they become very important because of the moment. I think it's harder to be a leader in this day and age with social media because the criticism is present, and it's not something that you'll hear muttered in a hallway when you walk past. It's something that's out there on everyone's phone that they're seeing all the time. So maybe it's a harder thing to do in this day and age. I think it's much harder. On the one hand, you could say, well, a leader can create a persona and they can hire people to to support that. That's true, but you are attacked from all angles And they're not just attacking you, they are attacking the minds of the people who would support or believe in you. And they are influencing their opinion. And so, and it doesn't have to be at all accurate. It can be completely false. And so a leader finds themselves buffeted from every direction. And I I think that undermines the confidence of many. It certainly shapes the courage of many or limits the courage of many. And I think it's a national crisis of leadership in America today, not just with social media, but we've allowed social media to bring out the smallest part of it, the most petty part that lies inside each of us. Speaking of social media and leaders, um, the president is, is certainly feeling the heat over his, his uh, pattern of social media use. Um, wh- what do you think about what he has to say in these tweets and such? Uh, is, is, is he doing this too much? And do you have uh, particular criticisms of the Trump presidency that you think that uh, if you could have his ear for just a few minutes, you might be able to fix? Um, I'm not sure that that could be the case, but I would say here's what I want in a president. I want in a president, not a person that has all the answers, but a person who assembles a team of diverse people who together will come up with the right answers and they can be reached in a way that is inclusive enough so we have buy-in. 
I want a president that inspires me. I want a president that makes me stand a little taller. I want a president when I might be angry or I might be negative is pulling me in a better direction. I want a president that when people from outside the United States look at us through the lens of our president, they see our values projected in in that leader. And I think President Trump is missing an extraordinary opportunity to be that. I think he has been running a political campaign to be elected and has continued to run it. And, And personally, I think he has mistaken political campaigning with the leadership of the nation. I think a lot of people wondered if, if, if you might be interested in either having a role in this administration or if you have any thoughts about a political future for yourself. I mean, I'm, I'm sure I'm not the first person to ask this question, but is that something that, uh, you know, flashes across Dan McChrystal's mind? Well, you know, it's always flattering to have someone like you ask that question just because it, you know, I've got an ego like anybody else. And I don't have a coy answer for you. You know, typically someone's supposed to have a clever answer that says, I love my current job. I love my country and I love other Americans. And I think that every American, if they truly believe that they're the right person to step up in a moment, they have that responsibility to do that. At the same time, I would say, I never had that ambition. I never, I went through my life and I never, you know, thought about it or wanted to do that. And I have a wife of 41 years who has been just an absolute stalwart. And so when you see the tenor of American politics right now, you know, asking someone like my wife, Annie, to give yet again after all she's done is probably something I couldn't do. Yeah. I think a lot of people had an opinion about you or maybe formed an opinion about you uh, based on, you know, the Rolling Stone piece, which I know you're probably tired of talking about. Um, But but was that a fair portrayal and are you the guy that people would create in their mind looking at those comments that you made that were critical of the Obama presidency, that you were not on that end of the political spectrum? Yeah, I'm, I did not think it was a fair approximation of the people around me or me. But, you know, I'm probably a little biased. So, you know, what I would say is when something like that comes out, you have to look inward and say, you know, what about me failed in that regard that allowed an article like that to come out? So I don't think it was right. I don't think it was fair. Uh, But at the same time, you know, I'm not always right. The effect it's had on me, though, is what I'm happy about is it's made me understand that, one, sometimes I fail. I think in that instance, you know, my removal from command was a failure. Uh, it's made me understand that the requirement for me is not now to be a bitter guy who goes through the rest of my life angry at some injustice that happened to me, because I've been extraordinarily lucky my whole life in the opportunities I've had. But my responsibility instead is to try to be the leader that so many people for my life believed in me and followed me and trusted me. And it's, it's important for me. I can't change anything in the past. But every day I can say, I can try to be the person that they believed in so that I validate their decision to do that. And I think it, in many ways, and, you know, there's always positive from a negative experience, it made me a little more thoughtful. It made me a little more humble. It made me a little more committed to trying to live up to what I hope a leader and a, and a good person actually is. Before you go, one final question, and that would be about where we are 
uh, in Afghanistan right now uh, as a nation. What do you think about our policy that, as, it, as it stands right now? Where do you think things are going, and what would you change, if anything, there? Yeah, this is such a hard one, because I kind of think we're dog paddling in circles right now. But I don't have a clever plan to make it easier because Afghanistan is one of those places that I am emotionally connected to with the Afghan people. And there are there's now a generation of Afghan ladies who've been in school since 2001 and young people of both sexes with more opportunity. So Afghanistan is a different country than it was in 2001. But to be honest, the older generation is going to have to move off the stage. They are there's so much scar tissue in the people my age there from years of civil war and all. I don't think they can get there until they get a new generation and and sort of wipe the slate clean and and try again. I think we've got to be thinking about a political accommodation, not continuing the war. But I don't think we should just step away either. I think the Afghan people don't deserve that. Yeah. Bring in some new eyes, as they say, and try a new way. Yes, sir. Yeah. It's a great book, and uh, in reading it, I felt like I was just sitting down and having a great conversation with someone about these famous names in history. And so you really owe it to yourself to sit down and spend some time with Stanley McChrystal's book, Leaders, Myth, and Reality, which is out from Portfolio Penguin. It is great having some time with you. We really appreciate it. Absolutely my honor. The TV show Murder, She Wrote, went off the air more than 20 years ago. But the lovably nosy mystery writer turned amateur sleuth, Jessica Fletcher, lives on in reruns and a long-running series of books. The latest in that series is titled Manuscript for Murder, and for the first time, Jessica finds herself in way over her head. I recently spoke with author John Land. So you're a published author in your own right. How did you get involved with Jessica Fletcher? You know, I I think it's one of those classic stories of, of... Uh, of, of something unfortunate happening to one person becoming, you know, something that becoming a boon to somebody else. My agent, Bob DeForio, for many years has represented, uh, uh, represented an author named Don Bain. And Don Bain had made a, 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 a great career out of combining his talents um, or utilizing his talents toward branded series. Also, you know, he did Margaret Truman's Capital Crimes for years, and he had done every single murder she wrote book since the beginning of the series 46 books but don had taken ill he'd gotten older and the original plan was that i was going to come in and work with him and then eventually succeed him but his health deteriorated faster than expected so um with the first book a date with murder i was pretty much um on my own almost from the beginning um inheriting a concept but pretty much having the freedom to develop it on my, uh, you know, by myself um, with Don's guidance in the sense that I had been given his outline and been given the, the, the opening chapters. Um, but it never would have happened if we didn't share the same agent and if Don hadn't taken ill. Were you a fan of the show before you were approached about this? You know, being a fan of a show that went off the air in 1994, 1995, that you know that that's you know we're talking about over 20 years ago. So I remembered the show. I remembered how much I liked the show. That and Columbo were probably my two favorite mysteries. I also was a big McCloud fan. Uh, you know, I, I just you know I'm I'm a, basically a mystery fan anyway. But I was not familiar with the book series. Uh, 
So I remembered bits and pieces of the television show. I remembered some of the classic episode, like mur- mur- episodes like Murder Takes the Bus, where, where Je- Jessica and and Sheriff, uh, let's see who was it? It wasn't Mort Mesker in those days. Um, it was it was the Tom Bosley character. Realized one Amos of Amos Tucker, right? Amos Tupper, yes. One of uh, they realized that it, after a storm strands them all in a diner, one of them is a, one of the people, one of the passengers is a murderer. So episodes like that always stuck out in my head as classic mysteries. So there was a um, a natural progression in the sense that I knew the series, um, but I you know what I could remember of it. But it was also more like starting from scratch because I wasn't familiar with the book series and my memory is not verbatim. So um, I think, to be honest with you, Lisa, early on, I assumed I knew more than I did. I assumed that I remembered more than I did. And I kind of think, I was thinking about this this morning when I was thinking about our interview. I, I believe that turned out to be a godsend. Because if I had gone into this series with the attitude that I needed to know everything before I wrote the first book, I never would have written the first book because it would it would have been too intimidating. So um, it's kind of like I took some lumps in the sense that I made in the first book some uh, f- mistakes in terms of the way Jessica is people what what people call her. Uh, you know, for instance, I've gotten some criticism on the internet from the fact that. Mort Metzger always called her Mrs. Fletcher or Mrs. Mrs. F. But in A Date with Murder, I have him calling her Jess, Jessica. And I think part of that, frankly, was, um, was the fact that I was in era. But a bigger part of that, and this is what I've kind of settled upon. I'm writing these books today as if the series were conceived in the, in the present day, now. I'm not writing them as period pieces or trying to capture exactly the same feeling of the television show, which was the 1980s, mostly, or the book series, which attempted to replicate that. I've tried to give them a more modern edge in the sense that what would Jessica Fletcher be, be like today if Murder, She Wrote were first coming on the air? And I think that's more my Jessica Fletcher to the point where people today aren't as formal as they were even 30 years ago. Maybe you could call it, I call it formal. The word also might be polite. People don't say Mr. and Mrs. And the other thing was, I honestly found it disingenuous that two people who had known each other and been involved in as much as Mort Metzger, the sheriff of of Cabot Cove, and Jessica would still be referring to each other as sheriff or or Mrs. Fletcher. Um, It just didn't ring true to me. Um, so some of the smaller, um, modifications, I, I guess, or, you know, a different kind of mythology that I was creating was a modern day mythology to bring Jessica into the 21st century. I really, you know, that's really what struck me in reading manuscript for murder is she and the people around her all seem a little bit edgier. Well, you know, it's, 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 it's funny you say that. I think um, a number of, of the reviews and coverage of A Date with Murder, but now especially with A Manuscript for Murder, says what I'm doing here are these are cozy thrillers. They're not as much cozy mysteries anymore. They're more cozy thrillers. Well, I'm a thriller writer. You know, I had never, when 
when my agent, Bob DeForio, first called me about this opportunity, and he said, are you, are you interested in getting involved with the Murder, She Wrote series? Are you interested with working with Don Bain? I said, uh, in my head, I'm thinking, I've never written a mystery. I've never written first person. And I've never written from the viewpoint of an older woman. Uh, so my answer, of course, was yes, I'm interested. In this business, the answer is yes. What was the question? You, you know, you don't walk away from any opportunity ever. Um, but I, I think what you're getting at, in addition to this idea of the cozy thriller, is the idea that anytime a writer takes over a series or gets involved in, in something with an established mythology, they're going to make it their own. Um, they ha- you have to. You have to put your own brand on it, because or otherwise you're trying to imitate someone else's style. You're trying to plug everything into a definable formula. Um, so what I wanted to do, and what I'm still striving to do in every book in the series, um, is maintain the things that people love about Jessica and Murder, She Wrote the most, while also giving it, and you said, I think the, the, the word edge is the word that keeps coming back. Um, I think the TV show especially always had more of an edge than people give it credit for. What I've done is sharpened that edge. I've made it more contemporary. I, I think I may have made Jessica more like Hercule Poirot. Um, you know, he more of a, uh, you know, more of a mainstream detective. Someone, uh, there was a, a review, and I do read the reviews on Amazon, and, and someone said recently that one of the things I've done, and this was a really positive review from a regular reader, was I'm not getting bogged down so much in the, in, in the minutia of life in Cabot Cove. You're not getting a lot of bake sales. You're not getting a lot of book sales. You're getting a story. And that's the thriller writer in me coming out. So let's talk about the story because you've really put her in a situation I don't think we've ever seen her in before with a little bit of government intrigue, a little bit of, you know, hired assassins happening without giving too much away. Where, how did you settle upon this idea and this is the direction you wanted to go in? Um, it was in a conversation. Um, I, I had a lot of conversations. I continue to work with Don Bain's grandson, Zach. And it, it's great to have a sounding board and it's great to have the initial reads were done by Zach and he was, he's very familiar with what his grandfather had done. And he, not only was his input vital to me, his support and positive reinforcement were, were, were important to me because he was reading these my my take on the series from the perspective of a millennial gener of the millennial generation, and if I could please him, um, a younger reader, then I knew I was approaching it as an audience um, that would um, that would embrace the new Jessica, uh, my version of Jessica, more than they might the older version of Jessica. So, in the conversations with. Um, uh, Zach, it turned out we both loved the movie The Ghost Rider, um, the Roman Polanski film starring Ewan McGregor and Pierce Brosnan. And the idea when you're dealing with a mystery writer of a, the concept that, any, that there's this manuscript um, and anyone who reads it dies because of some secret that the manuscript contains or maybe something else. That just was such an intriguing what Hitchcock would call a MacGuffin. Um, and using the 
publishing industry, which obviously I have some familiarity with, as a backdrop and getting more into Jessica and more into letting us meet, see how she interacts with the person who is greatly responsible for her career um, and what he's going through. And that's her publisher, Lane Barfield, who only makes it through about the first 50 pages um, before he, he before I before he's killed um, or commits suicide. You have to decide which. So it was kind of like a natural kind of potentially more of a thriller concept than a mystery concept. The mystery lies in Jessica trying to figure out why all these people who what is it about this manuscript that is causing people to die, to be murdered who are reading it. And of course, since she's now reading it, this is where the thriller element comes in. In the past, Jessica would solve mysteries, um, but there would never be any threat to her life. She would never be in danger herself. Very rarely would that ever happen in the books or the TV series. In my take on Jessica, her exploits are being undertaken at the expense of her own safety. So there's stakes, in other words, and this is what you were getting at with Edge before. The stakes are higher because Jessica's life is at stake. Jessica, in, in Manuscript for Murder, small spoiler alert, her beloved home nearly burns down because of what happens. So this is something you normally don't see um, in a Murder, She Wrote mystery, but this is one of the primary um, modernizations, alterations, revisions, different approaches that I'm taking. You really turned it up for her in this book. Is it going to just stay in this high gear for the other books that you have planned? My take on Jessica is every case is somehow personal. She doesn't necessarily do, get involved in these investigations because she wants to. She gets involved because she feels she has to, because she's doing it for, the, for, for, for justice. I know that sounds cliched, but it's true in Jessica's case. This makes her more of a traditional hero. Um, her quest is to solve a mystery, to help someone who desperately needs her skills. Uh, and, and the answer, so the answer is yes. Um, in, the next in the next episode, uh, installment, I should say, uh, Murder in Red, she's taking out on a sinister private hospital network and the pharmaceutical industries, which is obviously something we see on, on the front pages a lot. And then I, pretty soon I, I, am, I start something um, that, might, that is probably going to be the most ambitious take on the series. Um, in A Time for Murder, which is two books away, um, and this is book number 50 in the series. We're getting ahead of ourselves, but I figure let's break some news today. Let's break some news today, right, Lisa? Um, in book 50, to celebrate the publication of that book in the Murder, She Wrote series, and there aren't a lot of mystery series in general or book series at all that have ever reached 50 books. We're going to meet Jessica for the first time as a younger woman when she's still substitute teaching, um, when she's still dreaming, thinking about being a writer, but never really thinking she can, just writing short stories. When she's still married to Frank Fletcher, when they're still raising their nephew, Grady, that will be, uh, that's going to be one of the plots in the book set about 20 years earlier, 25 years earlier. In the present, there'll be a murder that she's investigating, a crime, something going on that's directly connected to what happened 20 years ago. It's not enough to just go along 
and just keep doing everything that's been done. I think you need to challenge yourself as a writer, whether it's your own series or some, or, or inheriting a brand, as I've been fortunate to do, fortunate enough to do with Murder She Wrote. You have to continually not only challenge yourself, but also challenge the reader so that they feel they're getting something fresh and original. So that all being said, what is it about her that makes her such an enduring character and people still want to hear from her 30 years after the first book was written? Great point. Look at the success of the reruns on television. It's phenomenal. The marathons draw millions of watchers. I think there are two answers to that question. The first is Angela Lansbury. Angela Lansbury created that character. Angela Lansbury was born to play Jessica Fletcher. So it's impossible to separate the two. I mean, and the book series is still branded with Angela Lansbury's picture. She's my co-writer in the sense that when people think of Jessica Fletcher, they picture Angela Lansbury. So we can't answer the enduring power and and mystique of the series without giving her uh, the credit she deserves. The other thing is, I think Jessica is timeless. Jessica is timeless in the sense that nothing anymore seems to be the same. Everything is changing too fast. But when people visit Cabot Cove, even my Cabot Cove, they're going to get the same characters that they love. They're going to see Seth Hazlitt, and they're going to see Mort Mesker, and they're going to meet Harry McGraw in, in, in pretty much every book. And they're going to revisit characters like in Manuscript for Murder, Artie Gelber, the New York police detective who was played by Herb Edelman um, you know, in, in the TV series. Uh, you're going to have a sense of familiarity with who you're who, with the format and the characters and especially the setting. I, I know that people have responded in the past far better to the, to the mysteries that are set primarily in Cabot Cove than they have to the books that have taken Jessica elsewhere. You need to, you need to change it up. But people want an anchor. They want to feel comfort. They want to feel as the world is changing around them out of their control. They can sit down with a murder she wrote book and and be immer- and be and be taken to a world that gets tweaked but never really changes. Manuscript for murder, the new cozy thriller, I like that term, from John ah, Land. Thank we've you. We've invented a new one. <laughs> John, thank you for taking some time to talk to us today. Thank you ever so much, Lisa, and I and I hope everyone enjoys the book. Second Story Man is the latest book from crime writer Charles Salzberg. We talked a little bit about the book, which features a master thief based on a couple of real-life criminals, as well as his long-running series featuring skip tracer Henry Swan. Why don't we start with you telling me a little bit about the new book? It's about a master burglar named Francis Hoyt, who um, has been uh, a burglar for years, and he's arrogant and he's athletic and he's brilliant and he thinks he's the best burglar perhaps ever and then there are two other characters one is a uh, former Connecticut state investigator named Charlie Floyd who has recently retired and the third character is a Miami police detective 
a Cuban-American named Manny Perez. And Manny Perez has recently been um, uh, suspended from the Miami police force for doing something that uh, involved Francis Hoyt. He did something that was uh, deemed uh, uh, unethical in terms of the uh, police department. And those two guys team up to try to bring um, Hoyt to justice. And Hoyt, um, <clears throat> after a while, what Hoyt does is in the, in the uh, winter, he is down in Florida applying his trade. And then in the summer, he comes back up to the uh, New York, Connecticut, uh, Massachusetts, Pennsylvania, uh, New Jersey area. And what he does is he follows the money because the rich people in the summer are up here in, in the, you know, in the north. And in the winter, they're down in Florida. So the book opens uh, in late spring when Hoyt is on his way north. And that's when these two guys team up to try to bring him down. And the book is told in, um, by the three different perspectives. So each chapter is told by one of the three protagonists. So that's pretty much what it's about. So it's a, a cat and mouse game, but you've kind of have two cats involved in it, don't you? I do. I do. Two cats who are very different. Um, Hoyt is much more like um, uh, Floyd. Floyd is also a guy who flaunts the rules and uh, sort of goes by the seat of his pants, while um, Manny Perez who has been suspended for not following the rules, is um, kind of really a, a, a appalled at that, that he did that. And he's a guy who goes by the rules, who um, is, uh, came from Cuba when he was a teenager and is very American now. He, he loves America. He's very uh, uh, straight-laced. And so those two are very different. And they're, they're both uh, sort of pitted together to try to bring down Hoyt who, as I said, is, is closer to uh, Charlie Floyd in the way he, he acts and performs. And as you mentioned, the three, these three characters share narration duties. Did you write their stories each out separately and then combine them, or did you write them in the order that they appear in the book? Uh, that's an interesting question, Lisa, because I, I, I'm, I'm someone who writes, who doesn't know what's going to happen on the next page or even the next paragraph. So I wrote them um, consecutively. In other words, I'd, I'd, start with, I'd started the book with Hoyt, and then um, I went to the next character. And I never knew when I finished a chapter who the next character was going to be, but each character moves the story forward. Um, I don't do a Rashomon kind of thing where you see the same event from the three different points of view. Each chapter moves the story uh, ahead in time and an in incident. So what I would do is I'd finish a chapter, let's say Hoyt, and I just have this gut feeling that the next chapter should be Floyd or, um, or Manny. And so that's the way I wrote it all the way through. So I never knew who was going to go next. And this was something completely different for you, right? You'd never had tried this approach before in any of your previous books. Well, actually, kind of I did in a much bigger way. I wrote a book called um, Devil in the Hole, which was based on a true crime, uh, a man by the name of John List, who um, 
uh, in New Jersey back in the, I think it was the, the late 70s, early 80s, murdered his entire family, his wife, his three kids, his mother and the family dog, and then disappeared. And the unique thing about him was that he planned the murders out to the extent that he um, let the school know that the kids were going to be away for a vacation. He stopped the mail. He stopped the newspapers. And he left all the lights on in the house so people would think that the family was at home. And the only way the, the bodies were found was three or four weeks later when a neighbor noticed that lights would go off and never come back on. And so I... I wrote that book, and that book is told in the voices of about 20 different people. Each chapter is someone else, either that was affected by the murders or that meets the murderer, in this case his name is John Hartman, along the way. So I had tried it before on a much larger scale, and this book just seemed right to do it on a smaller scale. And I didn't mention that, that, um, that the, the burglar... Um, Francis Hoyt, is actually patterned after two real-life burglars. One was called the Dinnertime Bandit, who only struck during dinnertime, uh, which seems uh, kind of counterintuitive because people would be home during dinnertime, but he knew that if they were home, the valuables would be home, and they would be downstairs eating, and he could climb up to the second floor and rob the house. And the second one was uh, someone known as the Silver Thief, who only stole silver and only stole it when people either weren't home or were asleep upstairs. So they were two different kinds of burglars, but they were both master thieves who um, uh, were hardly ever caught. I mean, they were only caught at the end of their careers. I love that your character is based on these two real-life guys. And also, there's just something about the nicknames that these burglars earn in the course of their careers. It is. Um, you went from writing for a magazine to writing crime novels, which you do now full-time. Was there something in particular that, that prompted the switch? Um, yes. I always wanted to be a novelist. Um, and when I got out of college and one year of law school, I quickly realized that there's no way I could make a living trying to write the uh, great American novel. So I accidentally got into, I took a job in the mailroom at New York Magazine and um, thinking maybe I would be a magazine editor. And I saw what dull, boring lives the, the editors uh, led. Uh, but I would see the writers come into the office. These were the days of, of Clay Felker when he um, founded New York Magazine. It was like 10 years after we founded it. And the writers would roll in at 10, 1030, and they'd smoke cigarettes and drink coffee and you know, talk to the editors and talk on the phone. And then at noon, they'd leave. And around 2.30, 3 o'clock, they'd roll back in. And you could always tell when they were coming because you could smell the alcohol on their breath as they came in. <laughs> and um, then they'd leave around 4 o'clock. And I thought, that's the life I want. So um, without knowing anything, I was not a, a journalism major. Um, I tried to write some magazine articles. And I was very fortunate and sold the first couple and that's how I started as a, a magazine journalist. And I found, I kind of looked down on it when I did it, but I found it was the best thing I could possibly do because I le really learned how to write, writing magazine articles. Because first of all, I had to interview people so I could figure out how they spoke and how different people spoke. And I also learned to, 
to write to a word count, which was really important because you you can't waste any words. Uh, so it was kind of it was just accidental that I did that, but it really was the best thing for my writing that I could that I could find. What is it about the crime genre that fascinates you? Well, that's a, that's a good question because I never meant to get into it. I actually wrote. This was about 25 years ago. I wrote what I thought of, what a friend of mine called a um, an existential detective novel. It was a detective named Henry Swan, who wasn't really a detective; he was a skip tracer, which was based on a character that I had done a magazine article about. A skip tracer is someone who um, it's the lowest rung of investigator. He's someone who repos cars and finds people who skipped on their debts or run out on their hu- husband or wife. And uh, he's a skip tracer who works out of Spanish Harlem here in New York City. And he is, um, he gets on a case. And what I did was I had him follow all these clues. And then as it turns out in the end, um, he doesn't solve the crime. The crime turns out to be totally random. And so I sent this manuscript out and everyone liked it, liked the writing, liked it, but wanted me to change the ending. They said, you can't have a detective novel like this because fans will kill you. They, they want the detective to solve the crime. And so I put it aside finally, and then 25 years later, 20 years, 25 years later, um, I took it out and read it and thought, this is pretty good. I can update it, and let's see if publishing has changed. And it didn't. Uh, so <laughs> I gave it to an editor that I'd worked with, and he said, I love this, but I can't publish it with this ending. So in 25 years, what I learned was to sell out, and I changed the ending. And so it was published, and much to my surprise, it was nominated for Seamus Award for first, uh, Best First Novel. I didn't even know what a Seamus was. But when I lost, I got really pissed off, and I said, you know, these are kind of fun to write. I'm going to keep writing them until I actually win something. <laughs> and so the fifth swan will be out in May. I've been nominated for several more awards, but still haven't won. So although this may be the last one, I, I'm still writing them. But what I learned is, is that I, um, I don't have to, I'm not writing murder mysteries. Um, I'm writing about crime. But what attracts me about crime is that you can write about anything. And I write about crimes that are much more everyday that affect most of us. I mean, most of us are not affected by murders, thank goodness. But we are affected by fraud or theft or, or robbery or um, even crimes like the breaking of a heart. And so the crimes that, um, that Swan gets involved with, offbeat kind of crimes um, that he's hired, and he's an expert at finding people. So a lot of them have to do with finding people. And so um, I can deal with crimes like he's hired by a young teacher who one day goes to visit his girlfriend, and not only um, is she gone, but her apartment is totally empty. There's no furniture, there's nothing. And so he has a broken heart. She's just missing uh, without telling him. And so he tries to find the woman. So that one's really about there's no crime other than a broken heart. She hasn't done anything wrong. So um, that's one of the cases in in a... uh, in a book called Swan's Lake of Despair. And so I also said that I would keep writing them as long as I could come up with snappy titles like Swan's Last Song and Swan Dives In and Swan's Lake of Despair and 
swan's way out. So, you know, I've, I think I'm on my last title now. <laughs> so uh, my, my question to you, though, is have you sold out since you changed the ending to that first story? No, uh, I, I really haven't. And the reason is because once I, once I was really I was really fortunate in being nominated for that award and finding a publisher that wasn't one of the big five publishers that wasn't so um, taken with with uh, that kind of thing. Uh, they didn't care as long as they thought the book was good. They didn't really care. Um, what I wrote and, and how I wrote. So a lot of them end in very unexpected ways, um, as does um, Second Story Man. Uh, people tell me that there's a real surprise ending, and it was kind of a surprise to me because I didn't know what the ending was going to be until I got there. And the same was true of Devil in the Hole, and the same is true of all the Swan books. I never know how it's going to end, and I don't know if I'm right, Lisa, but my feeling is if I don't know how it's going to end, neither will the reader. No, I love that idea. And you're not the first author I've spoken to who writes crime fiction who's told me I had no idea how it was going to end while I was writing it. So it's really fascinating from a reader's point of view as well. Mm -hmm. There seem to be two schools. One is that, that they're called pantsers. I don't really like that. And the others are, are people who, uh, I have a friend who has to know everything that's going to happen before she can start to write. And she has a problem with the rewriting process when an editor asks her to rewrite, not because she's difficult, but in her mind, if they ask her to change something, it's not the way it happened to her because she's imagined the whole book already before it started, which I find very interesting. Um, but yes, so there are two schools of thought. Some people cannot start unless they've outlined everything. And then there are people like me, the other people you've talked to, who can't write that way. If I knew that, I probably wouldn't write the book because I would find it to be stale if I knew what was going to happen. Charles Salzberg, thank you for taking some time to talk to us about your new works and also about the whole writing process in general. Oh, thank you. It was very fun. And that is all she wrote. Seriously, this is where my script ends. Next week, we travel to Cuba with former BBC Havana correspondent Sarah Rainsford. And don't forget, you can always find us on Twitter and Instagram at WCBS ADD Books.